Welcome to the Marrow Report. The Marrow Report is recorded in front of a live virtual audience on the Duck Pond. Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, live. Mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. One more thing before we start. Let me turn it over to my friend that you may know from Ancient Aliens and Curse of Oak Island and many other things. Robert Clotworthy. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. I want to welcome everybody to the show this evening um, for... For those of you who keep track, I broke the match before the show, so that means we're going to have a good show. I don't know if that's what that means or not, but we'll just keep the superstition going. Uh, <laughs> apparently, I bought some cheap matches. But anyways, my guest tonight is Chris Brady, the author of The the Bitcoin Bride, and, and I want to say several other books. I didn't count them, but this guy is a busy guy, and I'm glad to have him here tonight. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jim. New York Times bestseller. Um Owns a publishing company. What? What? I mean, do you want to give me the thumbnail sketch so we can dive deep? Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I'm CEO of a company called the Life Platform, uh, and we offer a subscription to uh, a platform of services uh, that range from uh, cash back on shopping uh, and um, soon to be some Bitcoin back for shopping, and that's why I ended up writing the book. I started life as an engineer in the auto industry up in Flint, Michigan, believe it or not, uh, and have gravitated all the way to being an entrepreneur and an accidental author. We could tell that story tonight, maybe if we get time. Accidental? I, I don't. I'm, I'm an accidental tweeter or Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, let, let's start with Bitcoin though, because that that's the fun part. So tell us the Bitcoin bribe. So this isn't your traditional why you should invest in Bitcoin book. I'm assuming. Correct. I um, I guess I could start out saying this. I heard Kiss, the old rock group Kiss, interviewed one time, and they said, we simply became the band we could never seem to find to watch in concert. And that's what the Bitcoin Bride is. It's the book I could never seem to find a hand to somebody. People would find out that I'm into Bitcoin, and they'd ask all kinds of great questions over a lunch or a dinner or whatever, and we'd have a good chat. And they would always say, hey, uh, where can I follow up on this? How can I dig in and learn more? And there's some great books out there and some excellent podcasts on Bitcoin. But what I found was a lot a lot of people don't read, <laughs> and they're not going to read a serious business book. So I thought, well, maybe I can get people to learn about Bitcoin through a story. So I wrote a whimsical romance novel set in Italy. I mean, let's make this thing as attractive as we can. And, uh, and along the way through the plot, the reader is going to learn about Bitcoin. So I wrote this book as a way to reach people who otherwise wouldn't dig in and learn about Bitcoin because I think people really need to know what's going on with this technology. Yeah, I was going to say, so the the question that I've gotten the last year, 18 months is, can you find somebody to come on and explain what the blockchain is? They kind of understand it a little bit, but it kind of gets crazy. So when I seen that you wrote this book, I'm thinking maybe this is the guy that can lay it out so somebody can understand well, yeah, that, let's do that. Uh, we can certainly do that tonight. Blockchain is technology that was invented in order to make the idea of Bitcoin work. So we'll get to that technology maybe in a little bit. Okay. But let's back up yeah, uh, let's, if we can. You direct the show here, but, man, because you're, you're, you know where you want to go, and I'm, I'm along for the ride. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the story with Bitcoin really starts 2,500 years ago in the 500s B.C., in Western, modern-day Western Turkey. But back then, it was a kingdom called Lydia. And two things happened under King Croesus in Lydia that changed finances forever. Two inventions. Number one was coinage. The first coins were cast, as far as historians can tell, by King Croesus in Lydia 2,500 years ago. Now, what was nice about that, by the way, there were gold coins. What was nice about that is all of a sudden, to spend gold, which had emerged on the free market as money, to spend gold, you didn't have to weigh it anymore. You didn't have to have these scales and balances and uh, and weigh out a certain amount of gold to buy something. You could just look at the coin, and they were fungible, meaning they were all the same value, all the same amount. 
and so coinage was invented. But by doing that, the second invention was government being involved in issuing the money. This was the first time that it ever happened. Uh, and that has been with us. That idea caught on very quickly. <laughs> I was going to say that idea probably cut, quit, caught on quicker than the other part, but okay. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, that has been a problem because almost from the very beginning, when governments realized what a great idea this was to have a monopoly control of issuing the money, they cheated. I know you probably won't believe this, Jim, but they cheated. Not the government. Uh, Hold on. <laughs> I'm gathering myself back up. Yeah, I know it fairy tale land here um but what they would do is um they would melt down the coins and they would recast them with uh alloys in them so there'd be less gold content they would clip the edges they would debase the currency and make the money go farther uh and basically it was inflation and they, that's a way to invisibly tax and rob from the people and fund your wars and your expansions and whatever and boy governments loved this uh and so that that's where it began and uh, as soon as the roman empire it was a it was a new habit of government to debase their own currency well things got really crazy in europe at the beginning of world war one all the countries fighting world war one went off the gold standard in europe in order to pay for the war they would print money beyond the gold they had in reserve and so that started a complicated process that by 1971 the whole world was then off of the gold standard which meant that now all the currencies of the world were backed by, or more importantly, controlled by nothing. So it's not too much of a leap when you've seen 25 years, 100 years of history of government cheating by expanding the money supply, when you now no longer even tether it to some valuable thing like gold, uh, you could imagine what happened. So I'm going to ask you this question that is not related at all, but we're here and I just want to ask you and then we'll dive back into Bitcoin. Buckle up. Is is Fort Knox Perfect. empty? Is is Fort Knox what? Is Fort Knox empty? <laughs> oh, that's a great question, <laughs> man. I love it. I love it. Um, no, it's not empty, but there's a lot less gold in there than they want us to believe. How's that? That's okay. what I think. Well, I mean, they won't tell us. I mean, they. Yeah. Anyways, anyways, not the government cheating. Anyways, sorry. Pound that, pound that down before we uh, get a knock on the door. I mean, the show's only an hour, yeah. so they got to hurry. Um, yeah. <laughs> so back to Bitcoin. Yeah, so what happened in 71 then, and there's a website. It's not my website, but uh, it's a great website that's out there. It's called uh, WTFHappened1971.com. You can look that up, and it shows chart after chart after chart of what happened as soon as government got off the gold standard in 1971 around the world. And productivity continues to go up, but wages do not. All of a sudden now, government is confiscating all the increased productivity for itself, uh, and they've inflated the money supply to the moon since then. So uh, one crisis after another happens until the 2008 financial crisis, uh, and then there were some computer scientists who called themselves the cypherpunks, and they said enough was enough. Coming out of that 2008 financial crisis, all the bailouts, all the handouts, they invented Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is the reversal of government getting involved in the money 2,500 years ago. And the technology called blockchain, proof of work, and some other inventions were all necessary in order to come up with a money that no government was involved in, that no central figure or authority was involved in, and in fact, no trusted third party of any kind. And that is the thumbnail sketch of the history of, of money and why Bitcoin was invented. So, <laughs> I'm going to irritate somebody right here. So, the nerds create this, but obviously they have to create the blockchain to, to do this because you said no third party because obviously it would be easy to, cop, uh, you know, follow the pattern of the wheel and create a, a website that you traded whatever for and, you know. So... Tell me a little bit more about what the blockchain is, then. Okay, yeah. The blockchain is uh, it, it's a chain of blocks hooked together, and each block is a collection of transactions that are happening on the network. So when Bitcoin launched on January 3rd of 2009, the Genesis block, or the first block, was put in place. And then 
what happens is all the computers on the network, because the Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin is two, is two things. It's a coin, and we'll talk about that, but it's also a protocol, a computer program, a software program, and it's kind of a small one. It's only about 100,000 lines of code, which is very small compared to, say, Windows, Microsoft Windows, which is about 14 million lines of code. Um, and that that network of computers looks around for transactions. If, if Jim, if you were to send me a Bitcoin tonight across the Bitcoin network, that would be a transaction. And these computers are looking all the time for transactions taking place. They gather them up, stack them into a block of a certain size, um, data size, and then they play a game called mining that to win the right to connect the next block onto the chain. Now, all of these blocks, this is a public ledger. They, anybody can look at any of these blocks at any time or all the time. And so this is a public ledger that records all these transactions. And that's one piece of the technology that was invented in order to make it so that you didn't have to have a trusted third party. Nobody had to trust anybody because it's all written in the sky and that open to anybody to read blockchain. Okay, but if I did send you that Bitcoin tonight, it's not going to say Jim sent Chris one Bitcoin. That's right. So you do have a bit of anonymity here because it'll just say a big complicated uh, address, a wallet address, send it to a big complicated, a different wallet address. Now, if how you got your uh, wallet address, they can if they can trace that, then they know that's you. But if they look on the blockchain and they don't know that that's Jim Mallard, then you've got privacy there. So in the early days of Bitcoin, people mistakenly thought it was entirely private. Uh, and there was a lot of nefarious things being bought with Bitcoin. Uh, but they found out that if they can figure out who got that wallet, then every action after that can be traced. So it's actually not entirely anonymous. Which, well, that's that's good. That's secure in one foot. Now, let's, let's okay, so there are these data blocks. Now, where are they stored at if there's no third party? Where does all this go? It's a shared ledger. That's a great question. It's a shared ledger. So <clears throat> the interesting thing about Bitcoin is it's a lot like the Internet. The Internet doesn't exist on any one computer or any one database. It's a network of billions of computers all connected together around the world, and they follow an agreed-upon protocol, a set of rules on how they're going to operate and transmit data. Bitcoin is much the same. It's a network of computers that share a set of rules they all agree to use by running that program. And so the ledger is stored on every single computer that's running the Bitcoin Core software. And so when a new block gets written to the ledger, all the nodes, all the computers running the Bitcoin program, look at it, make sure it follows all the rules and that you didn't send me a Bitcoin that you didn't have or that you didn't double spend it. That's one of the biggest problems they had to solve. Uh, and they make sure Jim didn't double spend that Bitcoin, that he really had it, and he sent it to Chris Brady. And, and so then they add that block, making sure that it's followed all the rules, and they write that to the, the chain that goes all the way back to the Genesis block. And every computer has a record of that ledger. Okay, so let, let's fast forward to today. There's, um, what is it, about 2 million coins left to be mined. Nerdy talk. There, uh, right? Yep, that's right. That's right, yeah. So what happens... Is I guess a is it worth the environmental impact to be mining these coins? I, I guess I'm pretty sure it is, but I'll let you handle that part of it. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, the, the miners, the computers on the network that are playing the game, gathering up the transactions and trying to be the one selected to write the next block. That's called mining, and it's just analogous to gold mining. Is I think why the inventors of Bitcoin called it that. And it's essentially a race. And because it's a race, it's like it's like cars in a race. You soup up the engine, you try to make a faster and faster car. And so over the years, these computers, these microprocessors have been sub-optimized to play only this Bitcoin game. They're good for almost nothing else. They're called application-specific integrated circuits, and they're sub-optimized to be great at playing this Bitcoin game and racing other computers to gather up transactions and be the winner to write the next block. And the reason they do that is because if they get to write the next block, they get issued some Bitcoins by the program. And, um, you know, Bitcoins are worth about 40-some thousand dollars right now, so it's very valuable. So they've spent a lot of money, the miners have, all around the world, to make super-fast machines to win this race. Well, when you have a super-fast car, it burns a lot of gas. And when you have a super-fast computer, 
it burns a lot of electricity. And so when you have all these mining companies, all these mining rigs racing each other 24-7, 365 around the globe, it adds up to a lot of energy consumed. So there are people who mistakenly, um, you know, cry foul and worry about the environmental impact of that. Now, the reason I say mistakenly is because they automatically assume that this electricity being burned is fossil fuel electricity. Over 70-some percent of it is clean electricity, is green-created energy. And a lot of it is actually even at the margin, where these Bitcoin miners will set up in places like uh, hydroelectric places, where in lots of cases, these waterfalls and these fast-running rivers have the nerve to not be located near population centers, (laughs) which means those turbines turn, they generate a lot of electricity, but... It's hard to transport electricity over a long distance, and so they'll just let the turbines freewheel when there's excess electricity being generated. So the Bitcoin miners race into those situations, attach themselves there, and they buy up the unused electricity. So there's a lot of that going on. There's mining rigs that go to um, natural gas flaring sites when oil is being drilled. The, a lot of times the byproduct is natural gas, and they, they can't. If there's no pipeline nearby, they flare it. They just burn it into the atmosphere, which is wasteful and bad for the environment. And uh, these mining rigs use that natural gas to turn turbines instead of burning it and wasting it. And so a lot of Bitcoin's energy consumption is being used at the margin, and it's driving the adoption of green energy. Yeah, you mentioned the burning off the wheels. I had one of those not that far. I mean, I say not that far from here, but it was it's probably about a mile as the bird flies. And it made this nice glow for a couple of days in the neighborhood. Yeah. Which was a yeah, bit ridiculous. Yeah, to see, isn't it? Yeah. Big birthday candle in the sky. And, uh... Okay, so yeah, what, very what, wasteful. Ha- what happens to these people when these Bitcoins are mined? I mean, there's only two million left, so they've invested all this money in the technology to do it, and then what? Yeah, so they receive these Bitcoins. And uh, they have to pay their electric bills. They have to pay off their, uh, you know, the capital investment that it took. Um, but, you know, we're talking 50-some million dollars a day at the current prices are being mined. So it's a big business. And uh, this game is going to continue until the year 2140, so long after most of us are gone. This game's going to go on for quite a while. And the new Bitcoins are issued according to a preset schedule. Uh, and so that's how we know it'll run until 2140. And so you have to look at this and compare how different this is from the U.S. dollar and all the other fiat currencies of the world that are tied to nothing, as we already covered. Bitcoin, we know there's only ever going to be 21 million coins. As you said, Jim, about 19 million have already been mined. And every four years, the amount of coins that come out of the program to reward the miner for winning the race, that amount of Bitcoins awarded gets cut in half. And so they're getting Bitcoin. The new Bitcoin issuance is getting scarcer and scarcer. As a matter of fact, the the supply of Bitcoin is growing slower now than the supply of gold every year. Yeah, I was going to say if if we're doing this for another eighteen years and there's two million left, I'm not good at math, but I mean they're going to drip out here over the next bunch of years. No, twenty one forty, not twenty forty, twenty one forty. Oh, so you've we've got another. 118 years, though. <laughs> yeah, it's asymptotic, so it keeps getting cut in half. Right now, when uh, about every 10 minutes, a new bit, a new block is written onto the blockchain, and when that happens, six and a quarter bitcoins are issued to the miner who won that race. Uh, so that'll get cut in half again in spring of 24, because um, that happens about every four years, and it just happened back in the spring of 20. Uh, and so instead of six and a quarter, it'll be three and an eighth bitcoins. And what happens, the price tends to go up very predictably with the uh, decrease in the amount of bitcoins that are issued for winning the race. That was good. I, I, I know the answer to this because I'm a little bit versed on this, but the, it's never going to cross the point of not being worth it to do it at this point. Right. That Yeah, that's right. Um, and. <laughs> And of course, the miners can—they can shut down if the if the price falls too low, they can shut down and wait for the price to come back up when it is worth it. But there's another piece of interesting technology that was invented here as part of uh, 
part of making this work. And this might be the most clever piece of the whole Bitcoin thing. And it's called the difficulty adjustment. And what that does is it notices how long miners are taking to win the race. And if, it, if it's too quick, if, the, if, they're, if they're writing new blocks faster than roughly every 10 minutes, then the difficulty adjustment makes it harder. So it'll take them longer until they're back up to 10 minutes. If it's too hard and it's taken longer than 10 minutes, then the difficulty adjustment drops down and makes it easier so they can average back to 10 minutes again, which means if you think this through economically, it means that the, the value of the miner's reward will pretty much equal the investment they've put in. So they're going to have a narrow margin because the, the difficulty adjustment is going to adjust to market rate rates. I think we can make a program to find listeners at that rate, adjust it, just to keep it in that sweet. Oh, never mind. Um, <laughs> or sell books. I mean, there's got to be. Oh, anyways, that's not how this, technolo- wish, that's not how this technology is supposed to be used. Anyways, um, right. so now that you've wrote the book, and it seems that Bitcoin is becoming more and more in the know and more accepted every day, What what's still the big stigma about it? You know, that's a really good question. Uh, we covered the energy consumption one. That's a, you know, that's a misunderstanding, and it was really uh, almost a prop- uh, propaganda campaign against Bitcoin uh, by some of these other coins that are out there. We can talk about them later. But um, I, think, I think it's still the fact that it's not – people perceive that it's funny money or it's not backed by anything. Uh, Alan Greenspan, if you remember that name, he was in charge of the Federal Reserve for 20 years he, there's a famous video clip of him being interviewed, and this is back a ways in earlier days of Bitcoin, but he said, he said, uh, you know, the thing about Bitcoin is uh, just doesn't seem to be backed by anything, which is hilarious coming from the guy who ran the money printer for 20 years and inflated the U.S. dollar <laughs> like, a, like a drunken punch bowl at a party uh, because the U.S. dollar is not backed by anything. As a matter of fact, none of the currencies of the world are backed by anything. The question is, what are they controlled by? The currencies of the world are controlled by central banks, which are really central planning committees. It's really communistic monopoly of the money supply, where these elites gather in a room privately and determine what the price of money is going to be, because they know best. And central planning causes all kinds of distortions and economic disruptions and malinvestments. Bitcoin is not controlled by a bunch of elites in a private room making a decision about its price. Uh, the Bitcoiners will say that, that it's controlled by rules, not rulers. And so I think the biggest misnomer people have still is that it's some kind of funny money. It's some kind of magic Internet money. It's not backed by anything. It can't be real. But it's just as real as any government currency, uh, except it's got this beautiful fact that it's entirely decentralized and nobody is in control of it. Nobody can be arrested and made to stop the thing. And I guess this would be a good analogy because we're kind of familiar with this nowadays. It's kind of like an idea whose time has come is a little bit like a virus. Once it gets out into the world, you really can't shove it back into the lab. This is true. Okay, so full disclaimer, right? We got. I've got to put this out there. This is not financial advice. This is Chris's opinion. But I'm going to ask him the question right. because should people invest in Bitcoin? Yeah, and I'll I'll answer with kind of picking up where you left off. Everybody needs to make their own decision based on their own financial situation and make sure you get educated. So there's no blanket answer to that statement that's going to work for everybody. I recommend that people get educated first, and that's why I wrote the book, The Bitcoin Bride, because I'm trying to educate people so they can make their own decision. I believe that it represents the scarcest asset that you can invest your money in. Because it's a finite supply. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not only scarce, it's finite. It's a pre-programmed amount that can't be tampered with by anybody. And it's the only thing outside of our human time that cannot expand to meet an increase in demand. Anything else, they can, they can uh, mine more gold, they can print more money, and they often do. <laughs> Companies can issue more stock, and they often do. Governments can sell more bonds. They can build taller condos along the beaches of the world. 
but they can't make any more Bitcoin beyond its schedule. And because of that reason, it's the only thing outside of our time that doesn't respond at all to an increase in demand. That is what some Bitcoiners call number go up technology. And when you sit and think about that, my goodness, I can put my money into something that is entirely finite and no one can tamper with that finiteness. You realize that, boy, if you give yourself a long enough time horizon and ignore the short-term volatility that Bitcoin seems to have, uh, it, it really should be expected to appreciate over time. And Jim, I'll say this. People say to me, well, is Bitcoin going to go up in price? is what they mean. Yeah. And I always say, well, I don't know. I can't be certain. But what I am certain about is that government spending will go up. <laughs> so I don't want to park too much of my wealth in the U.S. dollar. I'd rather park it into Bitcoin. I was going to say, you just took the well, words out of my mouth because, you know, Bitcoin was at, what, 61, 62 last year. And now it's at, what, 41, 42, whatever it is. I didn't look. I should have. That's right. So, I mean, that's a big drop over the course of a year. Um, so yeah, you're t- Bitcoin you're, is very volatile. What's that? So you're you're saying this is more of a long term play and not a uh, short term fix for anybody's financial problems too. That's right. I I'm not a trader. I don't believe in timing the market. I I um I, some of my best investment results have come from listening to some things that Warren Buffett, Sam Druckenmiller, all the big guys have said, and you know, and they all talk about having a long term time horizon, being in for the long term. And um, uh, Bitcoin is not something to play with unless you're a trader and a gambler, gambler and a speculator, and you know how to do that short-term stuff. Me personally, I'm in for the long term, and that makes it a lot easier because I just look at the at the fundamentals of scarcity and finiteness over time that can't be changed, and I realize that it's the best place to park some of the fruit of my labor where it can't be tampered with. And here's another neat statistic about Bitcoin: if you took a, a set of calipers, the engineer in me is coming out. <laughs> Uh, and they were spread four years apart. You cannot look at the Bitcoin price chart anywhere across any four-year span and have it be down. It's always been up. Any four-year span you want to look at through the whole price history of Bitcoin, it's always up. Now, that obviously, that's not a perfect predictor of future returns or anything like that. But after 13 years, that's pretty encouraging that if you've got at least a four-year time horizon in your mind, maybe Bitcoin is something you ought to at least dig into and learn about. Which is good. Okay, so shifting to other cryptocurrencies a little bit here. What do you, what do you make of uh, like the the number one question I always get asked is you know about Dogecoin because it seemed to pop up out of nowhere and hit you know hit hard. But are they as um, I don't even know the word I'm looking for. I don't want to say strong, but because some of them have no limit and they can be mined forever, and it just seems. The wild rest is happening around cryptocurrency. Yes, it exactly. It totally is the wild west. The, I think the easiest way uh, to understand the cryptocurrency world is to split it into two. On one side, you've got Bitcoin all by itself. And on the other side, you've got all the other cryptocurrencies. Now, by the way, this is not Chris Brady's opinion. This is Fidelity saying this. Fidelity is one of the largest asset management companies in the world. They manage trillions of dollars with a T. Uh, these are they're the real deal. And um, just last week, they published a paper describing the cryptocurrency space. Anybody can go find it out there. Um, and they split it into two. They say on one side is Bitcoin. They say there's two distinct bodies of work going on here. One of them is Bitcoin and all the things we're talking about and being a decentralized, non-governmental, finite, scarce digital property and all the other cryptocurrencies are on the other side and they can so bitcoin would be analogous to the invention of the internet and all the other cryptocurrencies are analogous to internet companies so if you picture back in the late 90s up to about 2000 you had the dot-com boom and then the bust the invention of the internet and the release to the public in 93 led to a lot of excitement, enthusiasm, and companies and venture capital, and everybody was a dot-com, and, uh, and a lot of it blew up. A lot of those companies, Warren Buffett says, when, uh, when the tide goes out, we get to see who is swimming naked. And uh, <laughs> at the end of 99-2000, we found out that a whole lot of dot-com companies were swimming naked, uh, and they blew up. They weren't worth anything. They didn't solve a real problem. They were just, they were just schemes, money-making schemes that were hollow and artificial. 
lots and lots of cryptocurrencies fit that definition. Not all of them, but lots of them fit that. Lots of them are speculative companies that are hollow, and some of them are downright scams. There are several that are legitimate and are seeking to use the technologies that were invented to make Bitcoin work. There are several that are out there trying to fix real problems, trying to address real needs, and trying to come up with really neat things like uh, smart contracts and um, decentralized finance and um, NFTs, non-fungible tokens. These are interesting, fascinating things that are kind of new and still being developed. And those are all being built on these other coins, these altcoins, uh, what, what hardcore Bitcoiners call crap coins. Um, but, you know, there's, there's some legitimacy to what's being done over there. There's a lot of smart people doing some interesting things. But it's, it's a lot like the Wild West, like you said. And anybody who puts any money over there, you're, you're, it's like you're investing in a startup company. The risks are similar. The odds are similar. It's very different than buying some Bitcoin as a digital store of value in a finite digital property. Does that make sense? Yeah, I was gonna say the, the Wild West is the place to day trade if you're gonna if you're gonna attempt that. In my opinion, yeah, and you know, you, speculators can make money, gamblers can make money, but they can also get burned, and they make it look easy. And amateurs race in, and lots of times they get leveled, and it's a zero sum game. If uh, if if you know, if you look around the table and don't see the sucker. It probably means you're the sucker. As I say, I think Kenny Rogers, Kenny Rogers once wrote a song about that. Just go look it up. It's okay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, you mentioned NFT in there. Um, that should be your next book. Not to put words in your mouth or on your pen, but uh, there's a lot of questions about that these days. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's so new uh, that I kind of want the dust to settle a little bit before I even try to be someone who feels worthy of writing about it. <laughs> There's so much going on there right now. Yeah, it seems like every day I see somebody, you know, popping off with this NFT project, and I'm like, okay, but, like, I, I you know, I'm probably going to say about you, are okay, that's cool, but what is it going to do long-term? I mean, that's a cool picture, right, or whatever, but, man, and some of them, I mean, come on now, those prices on some of them, you know that's going to zero, right? Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah, because the you, what is the fundamental analysis of that? Now, it's, it's interesting because they tie the contract, the smart contract gets tied to the rights of the image or the video clip or whatever it is. And the creator, every time that, that NFT gets sold and resold, the creator gets a percentage of that. Like there's interesting things like that built into these contracts. But man, this is entirely unproven, very speculative and I mean, it could it could turn out to be something. Um, it could turn out to be nothing. It could land somewhere in between. It's just super early days on that, and um, I I don't know. We'll have to see where that goes. That needs to be watched. I Bitcoin think, to me is just so much simpler. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it definitely is simpler, but I I think there like NFTs there is a place for them. Like there will be something good that you know like events. Yeah, like there will be something. You know, there is something there. But some of this stuff right now, the early stuff. Don't yeah, be, inve when, don't be investing in the stick figures, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, some of these some of these amounts that are that you hear about are just astronomical. Hey, I'm happy for the creator. I mean, let's let's be honest, we're both creative people. If we could get twenty thousand yeah. dollars for a stick figure, hey, actually let's let's call this a show and start drawing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got lots of intellectual property I've published over the past twenty five years, so if the NFT space really matures and settles out and becomes something where, because the other thing too, Jim, is I, I wouldn't want to sell something at the height of the hype and end up being the one who ripped somebody off either. Yeah, that's where we agree on that. Because, man, uh, as much as I would like $20,000 for a stick figure, I'd hate that email next year that says, hey, man, remember that thing you sold me for $20,000? I can't sell it for a dime. Right, and I know where you live. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so you know, I think it's it's a it's exciting technologically, financially. I think you better have a big question mark on it until we see where things go. So let's shift into some of the other realms of stuff that you wrote about. You mentioned Italy earlier. You you have a yeah. great passion for it, so give me give me a few minutes on that before we we transition to leadership. All right, yeah. So back in uh, the first time I ever went to Italy was two thousand eight, and then I went again in two thousand nine a couple times. 
And then I don't even know how I did this, Jim, but I was able to take a month off of everything in the summer of 2010. My kids were quite a bit younger, obviously younger than, but they were little. And uh, we rented a couple different Italian villas in the Tuscan countryside. I I rented a motorcycle and raced around the, the country roads of Tuscany. And it was absolutely marvelous. So we went back the next year and did it again. We only had a couple weeks next year, but still wonderful. And uh, I, I dug out my journal of that summer before, and I was just laughing at myself at all the funny things that had happened. And my wife said, why don't you write that up? And I said, I write leadership books. I write finance books. Nobody's <laughs> going to read a, a book by me on Italy. And she goes, who cares if anybody reads it? Just write something really good. You'll enjoy it. So I did. And uh, it ended up being one of, <laughs> one of my most popular books. Uh, and it's just a memoir of a summer in Italy. And um, it, it's a little bit humorous. It's a little bit travelogue. It's a little bit memoir. It's, it's got some leadership development stuff in there. But for me, it was just a love letter to a moment in time and a beautiful country with wonderful people and a, uh, just an incomparable culture, delicious food, awesome wine. Uh, and I could talk to you for hours about Italy. Well, I'm not going to let you talk to me for hours, but I mean, we probably could, but we probably shouldn't. Um, but I'm going to give you the opportunity that I rarely do around here. Go ahead and make me okay. hungry. Make me hungry for about 30 seconds. What, what if I ever make it to Italy? What should I try? Oh man, you've got to go to Naples, which, by the way, is the most crowded spot in Western Europe, uh, and it's one of the oldest spots in Western Europe. Go to Naples and go down, way down into the subterranean, the downtown area of old Naples and uh, there's a there's a restaurant there called Da Michaela and it's been serving pizza for as far back as anybody can remember and there's only four items on the menu um, two different kinds of pizza and two different kinds of wine that's it and there that it's made with local ingredients and pure water and awesome tomatoes and a crust they cook it in 30 seconds the pizza oven's so hot they slide it in there. It's in there for 30 seconds. They slide it back out, and the crust bubbles up huge. And it is the most mouth-watering, delicious pizza you've ever had in your life. There, Once you eat pizza in Naples, Italy, Napoli, as they say, you'll, you'll, <laughs> the rest of it doesn't even seem like pizza. It is absolutely amazing. Well, that, that, that turned into regret pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, engineer guy, how did you get into leadership? Well, that's the accidental part that I mentioned earlier. My good friend Oren Woodward and I both went to, uh, used to be General Motors Institute. It's called Kettering University now in downtown Flint, Michigan. And uh, we both ended up working at AC Spark Plug, and then it became Delco and Delphi. And um, he and I started a leadership training business and a sales training business. And one night we sat up kind of debating why some people end up being successful and others don't, particularly when it came to leadership and leading sales teams. And, and we, you know, we were kind of mystified by this. Like you, you couldn't tell it wouldn't be the tall guy. It wouldn't be the good looking guy. It wouldn't even be a guy sometimes, you know, there was no rhyme or reason to it. So we started writing down all these words. Well, they had to have character and charisma and drive and all these different things. And we boiled it down to the word hunger. And so we thought we had a lot to say about this, and we thought, well, let's make a little pamphlet on what we've kind of figured out here that we see building these sales teams. And and uh, and then the pamphlet grew into a booklet. The booklet grew into a book, and we didn't know what to do with a book, so we just kind of self-published it. And it was pretty amateur. But the content was, was pretty good. And a guy in the back of the room at one of our little seminars bought that book. And he liked it so much that he went to Manhattan, and he had some connections there, and he calls us out of the blue, and he says, hey, Time Warner wants to publish your book. They'll give you $50,000 each uh, 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 royalty, advanced royalty. What do you think? And I said, well, I'll have to think about it for a minute. And I moved the phone away from my ear for about half a second, pulled it back, and said, all right, let's do it. <laughs> and, um, and so that book is called Launching a Leadership Revolution, and that's our most successful book. That's my top-selling book. Orrin Woodward and Chris Brady were on there together. And uh, that went to the number one uh, of New York Times business bestseller list, ahead of Alan Greenspan, by the way, who I mentioned earlier. <laughs> We're proud of that. Um, and, uh, and, and it was we became accidental authors. And because I think it's because we didn't set out to be authors. We were leaders, leading organizations, and trying to train people to do the same thing. And then we just wrote about 
the battle that we were experiencing in real life and just put it to words. So hunger, which was a good 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 segue from the story that I had had you tell before that. Um, <laughs> You're right. <laughs> so give give me a little bit more depth on that. I mean, how do you see that in somebody? I guess I mean. Because, like you said, charisma yeah. and, I mean, the other characteristics were easy for me to kind of spot or visualize seeing in somebody, but hunger, not so definable. That's right. That's what makes it so uh, such a curious thing, because anybody can lead. And uh, lots of people think you have to be born to it, or you have to look a certain way, or you have to have connections, or whatever. No. Anybody can lead. As a matter of fact, we are all going to be called upon to lead at some point, maybe many points in our lives. And the premise of the book was, are you going to be ready? Are you going to be equipped and ready for those moments? Because everybody will find themselves in a position where they should lead, at least, and we would hope to equip them to do so. And hunger is the key. It doesn't matter how far back you begin. It doesn't matter how far down you start. It doesn't matter what your disadvantage is. As a matter of fact, those almost become advantages because you have to overcome them. And in the very overcoming, it makes you great. But hunger is the fuel that drives everything. And it, it makes you work. It makes you learn. It makes you grow, change, adapt, get better, strive, set goals. It makes you resilient. It makes you overcome obstacles and setbacks. It keeps you in the game long term. All the things that are required for high-level success all go back to hunger and you're right jim they're very hard to spot in someone and so what we started teaching was that people have to self-select you can't anoint someone with leadership you can't assign them the role it's not management you don't get promoted into it leadership is earned and people get to identify themselves and it's such a liberating thought when you think about it that anybody hearing your show right now can can be a leader they just have to decide to and be driven enough to overcome everything it takes to get where they need to go. It's amazing. It's an amazing truth, and it plays out again and again. So I'm going to ask Germantown Runner in my chat room a question, but I'm going to ask you at the same time. So hopefully, right. hopefully he's paying attention. He's talking about flip-flops at the moment, so I'm not sure how well that he's paying attention. Um, <laughs> calling him out by name. Um, is that the it factor we're always talking about when we're looking at athletes? They have it. Because Hunter would would fit that. Yeah, absolutely. You think of Tom Brady. We featured him in that book, by the way, way back in 2007. Um, You know, he's had three Hall of Fame careers probably, and that was after his first one. Um, And, yeah, you think about it. He wasn't particularly athletic in terms of the stereotype when you think of athletes. He – Everybody's seen that combine picture of him trying to run. He wasn't fast. He wasn't muscular. He wasn't agile. But he was hungry, and all through the years he managed to stay hungry, and that was the foundational it factor that that made him matchless over time. No one could, no one could carry a grudge as long as him. No one could be self motivated. No one could be so self denying. No one could be so self disciplined. And it all went down to his hunger and what was driving him. And that should that should motivate people to realize that wait a second, all I got to do is want it bad enough. And out of that comes everything else. And believe it or not, the answer is yes. Yeah, because you mentioned Tom Brady. I, I instantly think of that hunger. I think of Eldrick Tiger Woods. That guy, driven beyond yeah. drive. Yes, through how many serious injuries and operations and setbacks and, you know, a scandal, What you name it. He's had lots of things to overcome and just keeps on going. And, again, another amazing um athlete at the you know there's never been anyone like him and i think it's probably because there's never been anyone as hungry as him in that game so how do we get somebody in politics with the it factor that wants it and that isn't <laughs> that isn't Man, bananas that good question. <laughs> i mean we, that's what we need isn't it because it doesn't i mean it seems like both i mean we both parties this isn't an analysis of one side or the other Nobody, it doesn't seem like right now, we're what, two years away from a, a presidential election. And who is the yep. guy with, or woman, not to be sexist at this point, who is the person with it that wants it? Right. I mean, right. We'll, I, we'll, I ha- somebody... we'll have an election and somebody will win, but right now, who's the person with it? Yes. And how many times do we get two candidates up there 
And people from all sides of the aisle think, man, this is the best we can do? Like, seriously, yeah. <laughs> this is the best we got? I was going to say, I, I, I've been thinking that for oh, as long as I, I, I'm in my mid-30s. Oh, I'm 37, not my mid-30s anymore. Yikes. Anyways, uh, <laughs> that, that hard realization right there. I mean, going back to W. Bush, I mean, come on now. I mean, at least yeah, he, I, he had it in his own weird way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, what was the book he wrote, A Charge to Keep? He felt duty-bound to, to take all of his advantages and turn them into public service, which that I, I appreciate that motivation. But, you know, I had some guy say to me the other day, uh, about the founders. He said, when they wrote all those documents and they put all that together, they made one assumption that's baked into everything in there because they felt like they were the brightest minds of their generation. And they made the assumption, which I think is now proven to be a false assumption, that it would always be the brightest minds that would aspire to those positions to lead the country. And I think a lot of the brightest minds want to have nothing to do with it. Totally. Obviously. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, obviously. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so whatever that is, whatever that reason is, that's what we have to fix. That's the root of the problem because we're not getting the best and the brightest up there. And, you know, two years out of a major election... You can see candidates that you think, oh, my golly, that person would be awesome. I hope I hope she makes it or I hope he makes it. And then they don't. Somebody yes. else gets up, you know, and, you, and, and no one's in love with the one that ends up there, but somehow it just happens. How did that one get up there? You know, every every time there's lots of us that think that on both sides of the aisle, and it's just mystifying. So I, I Germantown runner did answer, and he says that's we're on point kind of, but he's a hard one to convince okay. of anything. But – um, he pops up your bio, basically your Twitter bio, and, and I see Rascal tweets, and I see the Rascal story of money. We haven't said the word Rascal yet, so I feel I'm doing a disservice to you. Well, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> Rascal's another one of my books, and it uh, it takes off on this hunger theme, and it, it tries to capture the type of people who do change the world. And I feature people from all over, all over history, every kind of demographic, every kind of background, every kind of culture, that are rascals and they, they step out from the crowd and go against the grain. And the, the whole thing is that um, they, they realize their privileges are not for their pleasure, but their privileges are for a purpose. And they take what they've been given and they use it to try to make the world a better place many times at great cost to themselves. So that was the rascal book. And it featured a bunch of the attributes of these hungry individuals who choose to try to make an impact on the world for good. And uh, and it, it does it through the stories of of different rascals through history. So random. This is weird. Just got a text message, which somebody who knows me is, is listening to the show, which is always good. I will not identify yeah. them, um, but they're listening and they're not in the chat room, which is weird. But anyways, so it's a good question, though. When you're sitting okay. there as the HR person interviewing somebody, how can you figure out if they have that hunger or that? it factors we were joking about that is a fantastic question so i've interviewed oh my goodness i don't know how many people in my life hiring them for our company and other things um and and i try to get at this exact thing because you can train skills um and but you but you can't instill hunger uh you ha when you're well if you take their lunch break away i mean you can oh, wait never never mind sorry <laughs> or I talk more about uh, Napoleon uh, Naples pizza, um, but yeah. So, so I'll try to ask questions uh, that that get to the heart of the matter. What are you trying to, you know, not what you know? Where do you see yourself in five years, or what do you want to do to get my job, or all those kind of things? But I try to get to the source of what drives them, and I'll even I'll end up asking them that after I've asked other leading questions, going into that, kind of building up to that. I'm trying to figure out what fuels their fire. Uh, do they? Are they trying to be excellent in the world? Do they uh, do they have a bigger contribution they're trying to make? Do they do they thrive on self discipline? Do they compete against themselves? And so I'll ask them: Tell me a time when you've competed against yourself and you won. Tell me a time when you set a goal and you missed it. And tell me why. And tell me what you did after you missed it. Because if you find that people 
they, they stammer around or they don't know what you're talking about or they just kind of fake it, then you know that this is a person who just wants to warm a seat. But, but a rascal, someone with that internal hunger, they're going to say, oh, man, you won't believe it. I, I had this goal and I missed it three times, and but then I finally did this. And so that demonstrates personal growth and, and adjustment and running toward a goal, missing it, getting better, coming back again. And so I ask those kind of questions to try to get to that answer. I want By the end of the interview, I want to know if they're hungry or not. And the weird thing is everybody's hungry in some category. I, when I was a young, I just got out of grad school and I supervised production in, a, in the shop up in Flint, Michigan. I was 23 years old and I had my youngest employee was 45 and everybody was older than him. And uh, my laziest guy, his name was Paul. And he, he was so hard to motivate, so hard to get to do a good job. But I saw him one night at the bowling alley, and at the bowling alley, he was the most motivated guy you've ever seen. And I thought, there it is. Everybody's motivated by <laughs> something. Somewhere, Paul was motivated by bowling, but I couldn't get him motivated to make spark plugs. Uh, but you, So you've got to find someone who's who's got that drive, and you've got to ask questions in a way that pulls that out, and they give you specifics to prove it. That's good. That's good. So Okay, so Mr. Sales Guy, I haven't asked you to do that yet. Give people your website, and I mean, we kind of beat around some of the books, but uh, you, you you can do it better than I'm asking right now, so I'm just going to shut up. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so everything starts at my website. It's very simple. It's my name, chrisbrady.com, C-H-R-I-S-B-R-A-D-Y.com, and uh, that's a good place to start, and it highlights some of, the, some of my books, uh, the ones we've been talking about, everything, and it gives all my social media handles and everything, and um, I'm probably the most active on Instagram myself, and I'm at CB Rascal on Instagram. If you want to follow me there, I'd love to see you. And I do try to get to the direct messages on there from time to time too. So love to see, love to see some new listeners and followers on there. Sounds good. So, okay. So the worst interview question, right, is to sell me a pen bit. Yeah. <laughs> I've never understood that one. I, I mean, I've seen it in the movies, right? Or everywhere, right? Sell me this pen. Well, you've already got the pen. Come on now. <laughs> so uh, okay so you also you're you've um, you're also in the radio business i think i've seen somewhere so what are you doing over there uh well we have a podcast that Oren woodward and i do called the rascal podcast and it's uh it's exclusive right now to people who subscribe to our app but here in a couple months we're going to have bitcoin on our app and we're you know there's going to be some some different ways we're going to make that available more publicly uh, so I've been doing that. And then I've had a lot of radio appearances with the Bitcoin Bride book. Um, I'll give an interview. Someone will hear it, and I'll end up getting a, giving another interview. And uh, and people are really interested in Bitcoin right now. And a book that's written as a romance novel that teaches it in a fun, easygoing way, uh, hopefully is well-timed for the market right now, and people will enjoy it. So they keep calling me back. Well, I've I, I enjoyed you tonight immensely, but your app. Well, tell me a little bit about that, because I think we – I'm – just hearing about it for the first time. So, what, what, what do you, what do you, you've got an app? Yeah, well, we call ourselves the Life Platform, and oh, we okay. have, oh yeah, um, you did mention it earlier. Okay, so go yeah. ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Now, tell me a little bit more about it. I don't want to be jumping over you. I just, I had an aha moment that I did hear about it, but I didn't hear about it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the, so the idea is that the billionaires have these platforms, and you know they make all these billions of dollars. They offer a few little perks on the products. You know, they'll give you whatever they give you. And then they make the billions for themselves, and they build rocket ships and go to Mars or whatever they do. Um, and so what we're trying to do is we call it the people's platform or the life platform, and we have products and services and, and different perks that we deliver to customers, but then we share the profits with the people who help us sell it. So it's, a, it, it's an entrepreneurial endeavor uh, where people can get a commission based on helping us sell this product. So we're putting some refinements on it. Like I say, we're going to have – Bitcoin rewards on it here pretty soon where people shop at different name brand stores and they can earn Bitcoin back for doing so. And that's another good way to introduce Bitcoin and get people starting to play with it and understand it a little bit. Yeah, so we've only got like four and a half minutes left, so probably not a great time to open a can of worms, but we're here. Uh, (laughs) How about Bitcoin versus inflation? Because it seems that we're also in that cycle right now. Yeah, so inflation right now is nuts. It, uh, they just came out with a number last week. It was 7.5%. Now, that's what they're admitting. That's the worst 
since February of 1982. And I just put something out on Instagram about this, that inflation is an invisible tax that nobody votes for it. Uh, it, it it's a result largely of government spending and central, central bank manipulation. And it's, it's a re- regressive tax, which means it hurts the poor while it helps the rich. It's a reverse Robin Hood. And it's insidious because people don't even realize it's happening. And politicians will campaign on this disturbing growing gap between the rich and the poor. And then they get in office and overspend and add to the problem, cause the problem. So Bitcoin, because it's limited in its supply, it cannot be inflated and debased. When If you have any discretionary money left over that you don't have to spend to pay your bills and keep the lights on, uh, Bitcoin offers itself as a way to park the fruit of your labor somewhere where it won't rot. If you just stack up your money and savings in the dollar, you're losing 7.5% a year on that. Now, in 10 years, that means you've lost half, over half in 10 years. So the problem, the tragedy is people can't just save anymore. You can't work hard, do good at what you do, and then just save your money for a rainy day because it's like a melting ice cube. And so now you have to learn how to invest. You have to have a second job, and you have to learn how to invest so you don't lose your money. Well, Bitcoin solves that. As a digital property with a finite supply, it ought to be the best store of value mankind has ever seen. And when you have excess dollars, you can just park them there, and it, it should be over time one of the best inflation hedges we've ever had available. Yeah, it's it's a good idea. And of course, the U.S. government's coming out with their own uh, digital dollar. Don't be confused. <laughs> right, yeah, That and when people hear about that, that is not the same. That is that is the antithesis of Bitcoin. It, it's like, uh, I don't take any superhero movie where they make the opposite guy to come fight that guy. Uh, and they're called Central Bank Digital Currencies, CBDCs. And there's two really scary things with these. The first one is surveillance, where they will know every penny you spend everywhere you spend it. And the second thing is it's programmable, where they might just say, you know what? Um, You don't get to spend that much money on food. That's too many calories a day. Or, you know what? We don't like that charity that you're giving money to. You're not doing enough for these causes over here that we bless. Um, And so, you know, your money's not going to be good there. It's not going to be spent there. Uh, We see up in Canada right now, they're, they're... freezing the bank accounts of those truck drivers in that freedom convoy that'll be super easy to do when central banks have a digital currency they can it'll all be programmable and and you know in the beginning they'll sell it to us as a convenience but you can see how once that door gets cracked open it'll get slammed wide open yeah i was gonna say and the old the old uh, hey we have a million of these or we have a billion of them and how do you count them exactly how do you count them when they're all digital uh, anyways Yep, it makes it that much easier to inflate and debase the currency again. I didn't expect to go to 500 years BC with you tonight, but we did. And now we're back in present day. And uh, Yeah, we've been to Italy, we went to Canada, we did everything. Yeah, I was going to say, what a, what a way to head around the world tonight, and I appreciate you. And uh, Man, we have, we have to go again again, because I want to get there, deeper into this leadership thing, because this hunger got me interested, so we got to get back to that some point. Yeah, we'll send you the book, Launching a Leadership Revolution. You can dig into it. Sounds good. Chris, thanks again for uh, bearing with me as I made myself look like an idiot. But anyways, I admitted it public, too. Look at that. <laughs> that was great, Jim. You're a great host. I appreciate it. Thank you. And ha- have a good evening. And, uh, well, I would say stay warm, but you're in North Carolina, so you don't count. Yeah, it's not too bad down here. <laughs> have a good night. All right, you too, Jim. Thanks. And there you go. There's there's Chris Brady there. Um I enjoyed that tonight immensely. I hope you all did. I hope we answered some questions about Bitcoin and Italy and leadership. I mean, uh, that's what we do around here. Skim across the top of great people and New York Times bestseller. I just love saying that because, man, those people who get there, they need to have that in their mind and have that respect shown. So I appreciate you all for tuning in tonight. Yeah, and pizza. I almost forgot pizza. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Anytime we could talk about pizza, and nobody has popped up the pizza on the duck pond yet. It's the Mallard Report. Yeah, the Mallard Report. Hey, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a good show tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Take a few moments, subscribe, share, all the fun stuff. You know how to do it. I don't have to tell you. Just uh, be ready for next week. It'll be sooner than you think.
Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.